0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of West Obsessed, where the writers and editors of High Country News discuss issues crucial to the health of the American West. West Obsessed is a collaboration between High Country News and KVNF Community Radio in Paonia, Colorado. I'm Paige Blankenbuehler, assistant editor based in Paonia. Hosting today while our managing editor, Brian Calvert, is away for the holidays. In today's episode, we're going to discuss what sort of mark President Barack Obama has left on the West climate, energy, and lands. To help me talk about this, I've got in the studio our publisher, Paul Larmer, and our far-flung contributing editor, Jonathan Thompson, based in Bulgaria. Hi, Paul.
1: Good morning.
0: Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Paige. Welcome, both of you, to the show. So, our latest issue of the magazine took a deep look at Obama's lasting legacies in the West. Obama's environmental and conservation record reflects an inclination toward the center and incremental progress. He designated over two dozen national monuments, more than any other president, but left other key public lands unprotected. But later in the show, we'll get to a couple of last minute monuments that may really um, establish his legacy there. He oversaw surges in oil and gas production, but embraced clean energy and tackled greenhouse gas emissions. Obama may be remembered as the first leader to seriously address climate change, which is perhaps the foremost environmental (laughs) issue of our time. That's drawn deep opposition from the fossil fuel industry along the way. In January, we'll inaugurate a president whose cabinet choices appear friendly to extractive industries and hostile to public lands. The Republican-backed Trump administration has pledged to roll back as many of Obama's decisions as it can. As we start this discussion... I'd like to go back in time to the Bush administration and talk a little bit about the political climate when Obama was entering into the White House. Jonathan, can you talk a little bit about what that was like?
2: Well, you know, I mean, when Bush was finished, Bush Bush was, of course, a very, um, he was the drill baby drill president, if you will. He really ushered in a lot or actually rolled back a lot of Environmental regulations. He really tried to uh, streamline oil and gas and coal uh, permitting and that sort of stuff. And and he did that. He he used invented categorical exclusions, for example, which the BLM used to to speed up uh, drilling and that sort of thing. And so then you had Obama coming in, who actually was not. I would not say that he was the opposite of that in any way. Um, Even during the 2008 election, uh, the the Democrats, you know, they were certainly pushing for renewable energy, but they were also pushing for a lot of natural gas drilling. I mean, they were, you know, Obama's whole thing was the all of the above energy sort of thing. He wanted to get uh, he and and many other Democrats were actually pushing natural gas as sort of a bridge fuel to renewables. So. It was sort of a a subtle shift um, from one administration to the next. It wasn't as dramatic as we might think it would be looking back.
0: Okay, so here we have this suburban guy from Chicago. What did environmentalists think about Obama when he was coming in? What were their expectations of him? I'm going to throw this question to Paul to talk a little bit about how optimistic conservationists and environmentalists were at that time.
1: Yeah, I think uh, everyone was optimistic when Obama came in on a whole r- range of environmental and social issues. But I think uh, people knew that Obama was not necessarily a public lands person. I, you know, I, I, don't, I think he'd only rarely visited even a national park before he became president. And so they didn't necessarily anticipate he would be – right on board with those issues about protection and things like that but they had great hopes that he would become that way and and he you know his first choices in his administration uh he picked Ken Salazar as the secretary of interior a very centrist character uh a democrat but but someone who was kind of a deal maker consensus builder and uh but 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 some things did happen early in his administration to show that there was a change that Jonathan was talking about and one of those was uh the cancellation of a bunch of oil and gas leases around Arches and Canyonlands National Park. The the same ones that Tim DeChristopher had had tried to gain uh, uh to lease uh Give he, us a
0: little background on, on Tim DeChristopher a little bit um for listeners that might not know that history.
1: Yeah, well he was the young man who went to an oil and gas auction and and bid on a whole bunch of leases around Canyon around Arches and Canyonlands and won those leases, but then admitted that he didn't have any money to pay for them and uh, was later taken to trial, uh, to court, and was jailed for his, his disrupting that, supposedly disrupting that auction. Very controversial, and it was a harsh sentence that came down to him. And so when Salazar said, "You know what? Actually, he was right. Let's not lease those those lease those <laughs> uh, areas right around the national parks." Yeah, it, that sends
0: it, a signal, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it was sort of like, "Yeah, you, you're, you were right, actually." And and then you know Salazar did other things like let's do planning on public lands for master leasing, so that we're not leasing everything. And that, that was a clear shift from the Cheney Bush uh, mantra of drill everything. And uh, so I think I think there was some changes there, but. Really, the momentum didn't start building till later in his administration with some other with some other key changes
0: yeah, it's really interesting. so um, we talk a lot about Obama's legacy, but what about the people he he surrounded himself with? You bring up Salazar, but who were some of the other characters acting behind the scenes, Paul?
1: Well, one that jumps out is John Podesta, who was brought on as a special advisor to the president, uh, I think either late in his first term. Uh, and he was a veteran of the Clinton administration, and he's famous, of course, for the leaked emails during this campaign. He was he was working for Hillary Clinton, but he, he had had vast experience of creating national monuments around the West during Clinton's surge, the Grand Staircase Escalante, and all the all the other uh, dozen or so that Clinton had created. He also was a true uh, climate change. Uh, he believed that the president should take action on that. And so it was very key to the, getting the Paris Agreement in place, uh, the Clean Power Plan, a uh, very controversial law, but, but uh, one that basically clearly signaled that it was going to be natural gas over coal in the West. Uh, those were things that Podesta brought to the table. And I think that's when, you know, this whole notion that Obama really had his eye on climate change more than any other president uh, started forming. And maybe, Jonathan, you got a few other ideas along that line.
2: Yeah, I mean I, I think that uh that it was a little bit different with Obama, it seems like, um, than with say Clinton, where Clinton brought in Bruce Babbitt, you know, and Podesta and sort of let them set the public lands agenda. There wasn't anybody quite as visible um as that with Obama. I mean certainly you had Salzar at first and they had Jewell, but I didn't get the impression, you know, that that they were um as in control as somebody like Uh, Bruce Babbitt was during Clinton's era, where he was going out and, you know, really, Babbitt was, and he was really setting the groundwork for all these new monuments. But, you know, I'm not sure about that.
0: And something else really interesting was happening in Obama's term, which brought a lot of political tension to the West. um, And that is the oil and gas boom. Jonathan, can you take us back to that time? What did Obama do? And what sort of implications has that had on the West?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's one of the kind of ironic things. We talk about Obama as being, you know, the, the first guy to address climate change and and to uh, he, he did the clean power plant, all that stuff. But at the same time, he also oversaw the biggest oil boom um, that we've seen in the United States in decades. I mean, really, almost ever production of oil, domestic production of oil increased to unprecedented levels mm-hmm. during his his administration. Um production of natural gas went so high under his administration that, it, you know, it caused this massive glut of natural gas to the point where it's, like, practically free, you know, at this point. Um, so you've got this this funny contrast going on between what, you know, what he's doing as far as regulations are going and what's actually happening on the ground, um, which kind of goes to show that, you know the president only has so much power, really, over these things, um, especially when it comes to energy. You know, we can talk about his legacy. We can talk about a president's legacy about how many acres he of national monuments he designated and things like that. But uh, but when it comes to energy, you can't really give him all the credit necessarily for all this drilling that happened. Um, nor can you can you blame him if if the drilling stops. You know, th- those are those are. Governed by market forces outside, mm-hmm. um, outside his realm. But but at the same time, um, Obama did push for energy independence from the very beginning. You know, this was a big thing for him, like it is for almost every president we've seen, except maybe Reagan. Uh, since Nixon first started, talked about how energy independence was like the equivalent of of the Manhattan Project or something like that. Um, you know, and and. He actually probably got closer than any president in the last fifty years to accomplishing energy independence uh, by by increasing domestic production of natural gas and oil um, and by you know implementing conservation efforts or and again this isn't all all the president can't take credit for all of this, but we've also stopped using energy um at such, we, we don't consume as much as we used to, and once you conserve, you know that's a, that's a great way to get towards um, energy independence. And so, imports of oil, foreign imports of oil, decreased to to record lows as well during his administration.
0: Yeah, you bring up a, a really interesting point there that a president really can't take all the credit credit for an energy transition, nor accept all the blame for one. We hear a lot of criticism on Obama for for killing coal and, and things like that. But it really seems like there's been a market shift as well as sort of a, a paradigm shift in our public. Um, do you think Obama can take responsibility for the way that we now think about energy and energy consumption?
2: Uh, that's a good question. I, you know, I don't. I mean, I think he, he can take a little bit of credit, but I don't think he's getting the credit. Certainly, Um, you know, you see Trump coming in. I mean, that's clear with with the rhetoric we've seen since with Trump coming in, which is that Trump is going to roll back regulations and therefore he's going to create another oil boom, which is not going to happen because that's not how it works. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, Obama, I think. Yeah, I, I. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if he's changed the way we think about things. Honestly. I would say
1: I would say yeah. that, you know, he's him stepping up in Paris and being a world leader. Uh, certainly symbolically, he was important uh, for the perception that the United States was was going to start leading. But it's it, this is an accumulation of decades of, of states doing incredible work on renewable energy, on industry changing, uh, you know, I think you know, he, he he kind of at least took the the bull by the horns a little bit, but yeah, he, he was standing on many people's shoulders <laughs> to do it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean he didn't do like he didn't quite go as far as like Jimmy Carter did um in in sort of wearing a sweater in the White House and stuff like that. But he did you know, he did make sort of strides as far as that goes. Um it was a good but also sweater. interestingly, you know, when it comes to, to renewables, then... uh one of the biggest roadblocks in in creating a in in building you know wind farms and stuff in wyoming and that kind of thing is transmission lines and in some ways it was the bush administration that really tried the hardest to knock out those roadblocks to building interstate transmission lines in order to facilitate moving electricity around which of course the bush administration wanted to move any kind of electricity around but the effect that would have had, had it worked, and it didn't work. But had it worked, um, it would have really benefited renewables. And Obama was not able to pick up that effort and really push it forward either. So um, there's a place where basically everybody's kind of failed so far, as far as renewables go.
1: Yeah, maybe, you know, and it's kind of like, Rick Perry, our, our perhaps our de- depa- Department of Energy head, uh, you know Texas has a booming uh, wind industry, you know despite despite you know maybe be partly because of him, but uh, I think it's it's really easy to to give people either too much credit or too little credit in government, and I think we're going to see the same thing move it looking ahead. Like, oh, is the new administration going to come and want to turn all the federal lands over to the states? Well, his in, new interior secretary uh, pick from Montana, yes. Ryan Zinke, uh, mm-hmm. you know, basically believes in public lands. And, and uh, he's also been a pretty good partner with some of the tribes up there on issues. And so, uh, yes, there are some fearful things out there in terms of uh, especially huge uh, backgrounds in petroleum industry from some of the nominees. But um, there, there also might be a little more subtlety out there. And so anyway...
0: If you're just tuning in now, this is West Obsessed, and we're chatting about Obama's time in the White House and how historians might regard his conservation and environmental legacy. I've got in the studio our publisher Paul Larmer and contributing editor Jonathan Thompson. Um, Over the years, it seems that um, Obama's administration has been picking up some steam, Congress passed the Energy Policy Act of 2005, eight years after Salazar became Interior Secretary, the BLM has approved plans for 15,000 megawatts of renewable power. Um, Just recently, we've had the Clean Power Plan. Paul, how might historians look back on, on some of those actions?
1: Well, I think the one thing we haven't really talked about here is the whole planning for large solar facilities in the Mojave Desert in Southern California, and you know this is being heralded by the administration as a huge achievement to figure out where those big facilities can go in the desert and cause the least harm and also be close to existing infrastructure. Several of those plants have been built, and I guess there's potentially several more on the building blocks um you know it was fairly controversial because anytime you create a huge industrial complex in the desert, whether it's solar or a nuclear power plant, you're going to have impact uh but I think uh, having a logic to how the public lands could be used for renewables as opposed to just for uh, fossil fuels, you know, was an innovation that will be remembered. Whether 50 years from now we'll go, God, that was stupid to build those plants out in the middle of the (laughs) desert. Everybody's got, you know, tiles on the roof that can do the same job. Um, You know, history will tell that story. But I I think it's certainly, again, symbolically, it's a huge, you know, statement that we are going to do something to address uh, our our emissions. And uh you know it it got started well before Obama it got finished during Obama so presidents get to take credit for stuff that's in the works. Um but uh you know the fact that it did get done is is significant.
0: Now I want to shift just a little bit right now and look at some of the things that Obama has done just in the past couple of weeks. Um, In November, Donald Trump won the presidency, but since then, Obama and his administration have been kind of on the the last rush to the end. Um, Just a few days ago, we had um, this highly anticipated Bears Ears monument designation. Um, He also designated Gold Butte as well, adding over 2 million more acres to his count, which is already um, quite the impressive count. Jonathan, can you talk a little bit about the Bears Ears designation? Um, It's been a long time in the making, obviously, but what does it mean for this designation to come now so close to the end of Obama's turn?
2: Uh, Well, I mean, I think we all kind of expected it to to come after the election. So it's not a big surprise um, because he didn't want to shake things up too much before um, before the election and possibly hurt Hillary's chances in Utah, which where <laughs> believe it or not, there she people thought she did have a chance, which she didn't, <laughs> it turns out. Um so so I think coming at the end of this term, I don't think it I don't think it makes a difference um overall uh, as far as whether this can be overturned or something. Um you know once it's done, it's done there's there's no waiting period or anything like that. Uh I guess the only thing that, that might affect that is the, is the fact that the wounds are still fresh. For those people who opposed it, you know, they are right now, they are fired up and mad and tr- they're ready to overturn it as soon as Trump gets inaugurated. And so, so it may have um, less of a chance of standing up because of how late the designation came.
0: Right.
2: Right. Um, so so yeah so there's that but otherwise i don't think that it it makes that much of a difference um when it came uh you know it 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 was a long time in the making it's been this has been going on for in some ways it's been going on for 80 years in the 30s uh this was yeah this area was proposed (laughs) as a national monument
1: well jonathan you just wrote something for our website about how the monument was changed from its original configuration to kind of you know, that to show that there was some listening going on to local concerns about the size of the monument, can you, you spell those out a little bit?
2: Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of that was actually a surprise to me. Um, so the uh, intertribal coalition that has been pushing this, they when they put out their final proposal back in 2015. They wanted 1.9 million acres is what they wanted, and they they set up the boundaries, and it was a you know it was a very large, um, sprawling place, huge huge area, you know 1.9 million acres. Um, Jewel came to to Bluff, Utah, of all places. The Interior Secretary did along with a bunch of top brass from uh, Forest Service and BLM and everything, and they listened to all these concerns they've talked to all the the local officials um they had a public hearing they went back they designate this thing and you look at the boundaries and first of all it's 600,000 acres smaller than what was proposed by the tribes and second of all the boundaries are very similar to what was put forth in the public lands initiative by representative um Rob Bishop and uh I mean, very similar. It's, it says, I'm pretty sure that they just used that as a guide. And so there's a lot of stuff that's cut out, which are obvious concessions to the opposition. You know, they said, okay, you want your uranium mining area not to be in the monument? Okay, we'll give it to you. And they did that. They cut out they cut out mm-hmm. the uranium mining area. Um, they cut out an area that uh, has limestone quarries and a little bit of oil and gas development. They cut out... Um, Another area that that's been used historically for grazing, that sort of thing, um, in in what I think you know they didn't they didn't say, come out and say this or announce it, but it's a, it's a clear effort to throw a bone to the locals. Um, so far, it doesn't seem to have worked. The the locals I don't the opposition hasn't even noticed that I don't think mm-hmm. that this happened. They think they still are even I, I when in their rhetoric they still use the 1.9 million acre. <laughs> Uh, number, and uh, you know, I mean, just because to them it, it almost doesn't matter. Like the fact that there was a monument designated is just enough to just drive them crazy. And, yeah,
0: and and to that point, um, some people have brought up this this point that um, from Obama doing this, it's kind of like dangling a mouse in front of a cat and putting in danger the Antiquities Act. When um, Donald Trump comes into office, and this is perceived as, as this. Governmental overreach or land grab um, that he could threaten the the Antiquities Act, which allows presidents to designate national monuments and national lands. Do you think that these concessions that Obama made in this designation will make that less likely in any way?
1: Oh, come on, I mean, doesn't Donald Trump <laughs> want to, doesn't Donald Trump want to create a giant monument himself at the end of right. his, his term? Right. I think he does, and I think it also goes to the point that. You know, these are lands that have already been protected at some level. Uh, it's not like we're imposing a, a wilderness designation on the whole thing. Uh, most of these monuments are kind of locking in close to the status quo. There were existing rights happen. Uh, so monuments, they're, sure, they, they look great. They're a great show. And they do lock in place some conservation ideals and protection of cultural resources there, which are incredible in southern Utah. But, you know, uh, they're it's, it's, it's not, it's not like a bold brand new brand thing. It's just kind of protecting what we have. So, you know, and I think Donald Trump's going to have more things to do on day one than worry about the antiquities act and the national monuments. I, I may be wrong. In which case you can tell me I was wrong, but uh, <laughs> I, I think that's uh you know, I think he's got a few other problems going on too.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think that once, I think once people see, once this monument starts going forward, you know, and this management plan gets drawn up people are going to see that really this wasn't that big of a deal after all it's not going to you know it's not going to be it's also not going to be as good as the environmentalists want it to be or think it's going to be it's not going to put you know huge protections on everything it's not going to shut out all the atvs it's not going to do any of that stuff but it's also not going to destroy the local economy or anything like that and i i think once people see that you know uh, maybe a year down the road or something, as long as it doesn't get overturned by then people are going to forget about it and not, not try to, to overturn it anymore. And, and I think that, you know, you can look at grand staircase, Escalante national monument in Utah, which continues, continues to be controversial as one possible example, I guess. But, but you can also look on the other side of San Juan County and you can look at uh Canyon of the ancients national monument also created under Clinton. Um, And that one, you know, there was intense opposition. I mean, these people, the county commissioners were ready to go to war with the United States, you know, the federal government over it. And now, you know, people don't even really notice it, except that as a good thing, as a something to promote to try to bring in more tourism. So, uh, yeah, I agree. I don't think it'll be overturned.
0: All right. Uh, We have time for one more question. So looking back on on everything that Obama's done and. Um, how he had to toe the line between extractive industry meeting this energy demand in this really dynamic country while also making headway on environmental regulations, conservation measures, designations of lands. What is your lasting impression of the Obama administration? Start with Paul.
1: Um, I think the one thing that really hits me is that um, after his first year, he – after his first two years he had a, he didn't have a Congress to work with, and he had so much opposition to everything uh and so much gridlock in congress that he he was forced to go the administrative route if he wanted to get some things done and I think we'll remember him as the president who you know even had less of a window than past presidents to get stuff done uh before a midterm election and and the and the whole politics of the country changed uh and there was in just him being the first African-American president and a liberal from Chicago social organizer, I think, drew huge opposition from part of our public And, and uh, you know, so I think we'll look back at the monuments and the new regulations and uh, the the attempts to do things, and, and very few of them were actually through the legislative process. And that's both a, a strength, but it's also kind of a reality of the modern presidency. So... Um, I I think he kind of epitomizes that that split we have now in our country.
0: Jonathan, what do you think? Um, You know, I think
2: that Obama will be remembered as as, you know, when he came into office as being perhaps the president who on whom the American public put more of their hopes and more of their fears on than anybody else before. You know, on the one hand, you had. Here here was a guy who campaigned as a moderate, really. You know, he was mildly hawkish in some ways. He was, like I say, he was promoting natural gas drilling and that sort of thing. Um, and he came in, and the liberals, though, thought that he was going to, I think because he was African-American and young um, and dynamic and, and charismatic, the, the liberals thought that he was going to deliver, all, you know, all their promises. In the meantime, the conservatives... The tea party you know they they immediately hated him and immediately pledged to resist everything he did even if it totally agreed with their ideology and you know i think that that in many ways shaped uh the way his president progressed his presidency progressed after that and in the end you know like as paul says you know as things went on at first you know he really didn't get anything done um but as things went on, like I think he started to kind of live up to the hopes really of people. Um and and he really did do some things that are pretty remarkable, especially given the the um obstruction that he faced. You know, he, he did he did do Obamacare, which is a big deal in the West um, because we have so many people who are uninsured. Uh he did do the Clean Power Plan, even even though it may get overturned or changed or whatever. Um, and he, he really did at least make symbolic gestures, um, on the environment and climate change. Um, and of course he, he designated many, many millions of acres of, or millions of acres of national monuments and, and other protections. Um, and with the Bears Ears one, especially, uh, he really Showed that he he really strengthened this relationship with the tribes because that's really, in my opinion, that's what the Bears Ears thing is all about. It's less about conservation than it is about tribal sovereignty because of the joint management that they're going to have with the tribal tribes on this. So, so yeah, I, I think I think that that is one thing that will for sure go down that Obama will go down as as being a president who worked well with the tribes.
0: Well, that's all the time we have for today, I'm afraid. If you want to learn more about Obama's mark on conservation in the West, you can visit High Country News at hcn.org. There's lots to explore there. Um, You've been listening to West Obsessed, a a collaboration between High Country News and KVNF Community Radio. Today, we've been speaking with our publisher, Paul Larmer, and contributing editor, Jonathan Thompson. Thanks for playing along, guys.
2: Thanks a lot, Paige. Thank you.
0: For West Obsessed, I'm Paige Blankenbuehler. Thank you all for listening.